Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Under the Radar SFF Books Podcast. I'm your host, Blaze, as always, and I'm coming at you with another author interview. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by epic fantasy author Brian Staveley. He's the author of the Chronicles of the Unhewn Throne uh, trilogy, as well as Skullsworn, and the new trilogy, Ashes of the Unhewn Throne. Brian, thank you so much for joining me, and welcome. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's been a long time coming. I've been a fan for, for years, ever since uh, the Emperor's Blades came out, uh, made its impact on me when I first started reading, even before I decided to become a blogger. So testament to you and your love for the for the genre. Well, thanks for reading the stories. <laughs> Appreciate it's it. Aw- it's awesome. Uh, so I'd like to go back to, to the beginning. Um, I know you are a teacher and you do a lot of travels. Um, how did your writing career uh, start and what made you want to write The uh, Emperor's Blade? Well, my writing career started uh, not in fantasy at all. When I was an undergrad and in grad school, I wrote poetry. And that was what I thought that I would do and did a lot of um, both my own poetry and uh, translations. And um, the problem with that as a career is it's is it's not one. Uh, you can't really make a living writing books of poetry. And so a lot of poets, um, they have another they have another source of income. A lot of them teach um, at some level. And I like teaching. So I went into teaching and I taught high school for about a dozen years. Um, and while I was doing that, I didn't just teach English, although I was hired to teach that. But um, I sort of started branching out into other subjects. I taught history and philosophy and comparative religion, um, a bunch of different a bunch of different things at different grade levels. And I thought, oh, it'd be kind of fun to write about some of this stuff, too. Uh, and so I'd grown up reading fantasy and being obsessed with fantasy as a kid. I was always had my nose in a book, whether I was in the car or, you know, home on the weekend. I thought, well, maybe maybe I could go back and try and write fiction and incorporate some of this stuff that I've been teaching for the last five, six, seven years. Some of the world religion and philosophy and um, ancient world history and so that was, um, I would say, the spark for writing The Emperor's Blades, what became the Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne. Uh, great. And many writers who have started uh, their career in, uh, in poetry. So it's quite, and it actually makes sense with your, your prose being some of the best I've, I've read. It has like kind of a poetic flow. Was that an easy process for you going from like short fiction poetry to writing a, a big epic like that and with your prose style? Uh, it was... It was and it wasn't. Um, I underestimated the difficulty of writing novels. When I went into wanting to write fantasy, I thought, I just want to write something that's a page turner, that's a little bit pulpy. I'm not going to be as obsessed the way that I was. When I was writing poetry, you know, I would spend hours on one quatrain, just going over and, and just kind of massaging the rhythms and working with these little tiny ligatures of sound and and whatnot and i I was like i'm not doing any of that shit if i'm gonna write a big book i'm gonna have some some sword fights and i'm gonna have some monsters and i'm not gonna need to worry about that and it it turns out that was wrong for two reasons one i was never able to put away kind of the obsession with little sonic details and all that and two I mean, it's stupid that I did not realize this going into it, but it's really hard to write genre fiction. There's a whole other set of challenges um, that I hadn't anticipated because 
why why I thought it would be easy, I have no idea. Um, some kind of dumb snobbery because I've been writing poetry for a long time. But so I had to come, come to grips with all, all of these other things like how to create characters and how to work with plot and how to uh, you know move from episode to episode. Just basic things like getting people out the damn door sometimes. I, I would have to stop and think like, well, how, what do other people do when they're trying to get their character to leave a room? How does that work? So... Yeah, it did. It did not come instantly or naturally. I worked on that first book sort of on breaks, summer breaks, winter breaks, whatever, for about five years before I got something that um, was sort of ready to go. Yeah, awesome. And going down that same line when it comes to characters and plot, some readers uh, read books specifically for like the characters and how they make them feel in their choices. Others are more plot driven. Uh, where do you fall on that spectrum, both as like a reader and as an author? How would you how would you uh, characterize that? I mean, absolutely the character side. And I don't I don't actually really believe that too many people are willing to engage with a plot if it doesn't have characters that they care about at least a little bit. I, I understand the distinction you're trying to make, because um, some folks are more forgiving of more um, sort of hastily drawn two dimensional characters if the plot is just crushing right along um but there's there's nothing there's no soul to the plot there's nothing to animate it if you don't care what happens to the characters right if 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 the stakes are life and death but death is irrelevant because you don't give a shit about this person it doesn't matter how big the battle is or anything so i definitely start with the characters and really end with the characters and let the plot come sort of emerge from who they are and how they are facing the other people around them, their own demons and their environment. Yeah, I agree. I'm a hundred percent a character driven um, reader. There's a few exceptions where I believe like the plot really is the driving force and like the setting. The yeah. one exception I can believe is like my last book of the fall. And that's one of the only exceptions I can really think of, but characters a hundred percent drive the drive the story. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an interesting example. I've read the first two books of that. But even there, there's some characters who are memorable. But you're right. The thing is so vast in scope, it feels more like reading history, I think, than reading fiction sometimes. Um, yeah, that's an interesting. And there, I guess I have picked up books here and there, sometimes thrillers or whatnot, where the characters are pretty archetypal. And I just want to know, like, you know, what's in the secret box that nobody's been able to open or whatever. Um, yeah. So I, I guess, yeah. I mean, you, it's great to have a great, vibrant, fast moving plot as well. Just having characters kind of gaze at their navels and have long conversations over brunch is not very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with that. Well, for, for your series, at least the first one, The Emperor's Blades, um, we have three characters, all, all siblings. We have Caden, uh, who's the oldest uh, son of the Emperor. We have his younger brother, Valen, and we have Adair. And all of them are vastly different, in, not only as people, but where they are in the world and the training they're, they're going through. Um, did you know going into writing this series that you wanted to tell the story through the children of the emperor and how their experiences are all separate? They're all they all connected into the world in some way and how they're dealing with the, this ultimate threat. Yeah, I knew that was the model from pretty early on is having these three siblings. And 
the model didn't quite play out the way that I had intended because the book got too long. And, um, it, you know, the, the book as it stands, I think is about 180,000 words, which is not insanely long for a fantasy novel, but for a debut fantasy from a totally unknown author, it's riskier, you know, bigger books are more expensive to print and to ship. And um, so my agent was saying, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I can sell it at whatever length it was, like 250,000 words or something. Um, or maybe she did sell it. And then my editor said, yeah, but we got to we got to trim it down something. So anyway, Adair in the first book doesn't get as much screen time as the brothers, which I think is a flaw of the book, honestly. It's a flaw that I hope is fixed in the second two books. But yeah, I always wanted to tell it in the, kind of these three equal portions. And I, I even thought of it kind of uh, archetypally as sort of a spiritual struggle, a physical struggle, and an intellectual struggle. Mm -hmm. Aiden has the spiritual struggle, Valen has the physical struggle, and Adair has the intellectual struggle. And obviously, all three of them are grappling with elements of all three of those things. But that was how those characters originally broke broke down in my mind. Yeah, it's it's good you brought up um, Adair. I was actually going to bring that up as well. How uh, I loved her like political storyline and what she's going through with discovering. Well, I don't want to get into any spoilers for yeah. that, but going through like the the court scenes and that, and she does have like the least number of page time. But the second book, Providence of Fire, one hundred percent makes up for it. Like she's. Very much the yeah. central figure. Yeah, so. she's central to that. Let me ask you a question. Do you like her as a character? I do. She, and again, not getting too much into spoilery mm. stuff. The first yeah. one, I liked her ambition. I liked what she was going to do. And then in book two, I loved um, the choices you made with her, like plot-wise. And then in book three, there's a little bit of a twist going on and she goes down a path. I didn't expect her to go down. That was just a little surprising, but as mm -hmm. a character, I do enjoy her and she's influenced by more than just her herself. She has other aspects yeah. of her person as, as well. She's a, she's an interesting character. I will say that. Although I, yeah. Valen is she's, my, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. She's the least, the reason I asked that she's the least popular of the three siblings. Um, and there are, are a number of readers I don't know if it's the majority, but certainly a significant minority who just cannot stand her. And I, I find myself, especially with with folks who I meet, you know, friends of mine or friends of friends, you know, drawn into these discussions about her again and again, because I'm I find her the most relatable of the three, actually. In some ways, I think she's she's most similar to, to who I am. She's willing to make kind of these. Uh, moral compromises and she's not an absolutist and uh, you know she's she's swimming in murky waters and doing her best to keep her head above water whereas you know Caden and Valen I think I admire them in some ways but I don't relate to them but boy some people just cannot stand some of the stuff that she does and they think she's a, just a lousy lousy person so I'm always interested to ask folks like well what do you what do you make of her <laughs> well I'm definitely not that um I'm definitely not that side of it with with the dare. Her her storyline, I guess, is probably the most. I don't want to say humane of all of them, and she you're, you put her in a very tight bind. She has to make difficult choices, and no matter yeah. which way she goes, she's going to be either wrong or she's going to hurt people that she really cares about. So yeah. it, it's impossible when you put that kind of a bind on somebody mm -hmm. for it to be good outcome one way or the. Of the other just yeah. the way the plot evolves so yeah. i appreciate that from that 
Yeah, well, good. Uh, yeah, no, good. Like I said, it's just always interesting for me to hear, you know, what what's working for people, where they got annoyed, uh, you know, all of that. Yeah, well, probably, and I don't think I'm alone in this. Everyone who's the favorite character in it is uh, definitely Valen. I I would say so, especially with his training to become the Ketrel and these gigantic birds that he gets to to fly on. Can you just, um, and also his is more related, at least in the first book to the magic system of like, could you just go into all the aspects of, um, that Valen his his training with the Ketrel and as well as the magic system, how did that come about? Yeah. So, um, I guess it's, it's sort of two different questions almost. Where did the Ketrel come from and where did the magic system come from? Right. The Ketrel came from my desire to have something like modern special forces in a fantasy novel. You know, it's a it's a staple of fantasy novels that there are these small bands of elite warriors, you know, all the way back to Lord of the Rings and before. But they're never um, there's no like bureaucracy or training behind that. Right. It's just, well, this person's awesome at smashing people with an axe and this person's clever magic user and they they just get together and they shit um i wanted something that was a little bit more formalized where you know everybody was trained from an early age everyone has a role the teams these are professional warriors um and uh and of course you know one of the features of a lot of modern special forces special ops is that they have ways to get around quickly you know they helicopters submarines you know there's all, all this stuff and so I wanted sort of the equivalent of a helicopter. So that's where the birds came from. I wanted them to be able to go in, get behind enemy lines, blow up bridges, uh, assassinate people, do all of this covert stuff. And and especially in a large fantasy world, if they were just plodding around, I mean, 99% of their time would just be walking. Uh, so So that's where these giant birds came from. It's kind of fun now that I'm writing the new trilogy because it turns out that there's more history to, to the giant birds and where they came from and how they got so giant in the first place. But I'll admit, I didn't know that uh, when I wrote the first book. So it's just kind of um, serendipity that that's all able to come together. Um, so yeah, that that was where the Ketrol came from. And then obviously, uh, well, maybe it's not obvious, but almost every fantasy novel, one of the defining features is that there's some kind of system of magic. And I thought long and hard about what I wanted out of a system of magic. And one thing I wanted was a structure that I could use as the novelist to create certain narrative shapes, to create um, mysteries, for instance. Um, and so in the books, if for, for those who haven't read them, magic users, they're called leeches. They have a well their well is the source of their power and it can be anything in the natural world. It could be sunlight, could be water. Um, it could be things that are more abstract, like fear um, of the people around them. And one of the fun things about that as an author is you don't need to tell the readers what the well of a certain character is. So there you play a little game where you can dangle these hints here and there. You can lead, put down false trail and the reader is trying to figure out all along what are these characters wells. The other thing I wanted was a system that would impact who the characters themselves were. Um, I wanted, you know, magic, as, as a lot of people have observed, should have a cost um, for its use. And in this case, one of the major costs is social, that nobody trusts these folks. There, there are witch hunts, you know, if they're found, they're often, you know, burned at the stake or killed. 
but also because of the reliance on the magic system, it really shapes how how the people develop psychologically and how they develop socially or how they don't develop socially. And so in addition to being able to play games with the reader about what the wells are, um, I was able to use lean on the, the magic system itself as a way to develop character. Um, you're going to be a different kind of magic user if your well is sunlight than you are if your well is fear. Right. You're, you're going to develop as a very different person who interacts with the world in very different ways. That's fantastic to hear. And you were speaking about the social aspects of all the people in the Ketrel. Um, yeah. One very good friendship that develops is Valen and Gwenna. So can you tell me about uh, how Gwenna came to be uh, a character? And was that just a, a pleasant surprise or did you always want to have something like that with Valen? Nope, that was a surprise. Uh, I had originally intended to just have only three POV characters for each of the three books, the three siblings. And then Gwenna shows up in um, in the second book. She only gets five chapters at the end of the second book. And that was honestly a just a, a solution to a technical problem, which is the the world is big and stuff is happening in all these different corners of it. And I needed somebody in, in this one particular place just so we could see what was going on there. And there wasn't anybody, but none of the siblings were there when I needed them to be there. But then a really interesting thing happened, which is that I had a, a vague idea of a plot arc for Valon that would take place. I mean, super vague over the course of the three books. And when I went to start writing the third book, I, I tried to have Valen pivot in a certain way into what I anticipated would be the end of his plot arc. And it just wouldn't work. I, he, I just kept bouncing off of it. I would try to write chapters for him and they were just, they failed. They felt stupid and superficial and untrue. And so I needed to take Valen a, a totally different way than what I'd intended. And really, in, in many ways, Gwenna is the one who inherits my original vision for Valen's plot line. And there's even a scene um, near the end of the third book where Valen is looking at Gwenna and he thinks she has the life that I was supposed to have. You know, I, I, I don't know where I went wrong somewhere along the way, but that's what I could have been. And that's both, I think, an observation that's true for him as a character at that point. But it's also my observation as as the writer that, yeah, Gwenna stole that from him in a way. <laughs> And um, she becomes, you know, I think you're right. People who have read Just the Emperor's Blades, Valen is probably the favorite character. By the end of the trilogy, I think it's it's Gwenna for a lot of people. I mean, there's still a lot of Valen lovers, but Gwenna is definitely edging him out when I, when I chat with folks who have read the whole trilogy. And, uh, you know, again, no spoilers, but it, to my mind, it's not hard, hard to see why. <laughs> it's not hard to see why. And then once they pick up the the new your new trilogy she's at the forefront i mean she's yeah. pretty much she's on the cover so yeah, yeah. i don't think that's yeah. a stretch at all yeah no and and that was interesting too that that new book the empire's ruin because as i was saying with valen i couldn't write him for a long time in the last mortal bond i couldn't write gwenna for a long time in the empire's ruin everything i wrote probably god knows 25 chapters trying different things for her um, all along the lines of this quest story that ultimately that book is, but they just, they were, they, none of it worked until I kind of hit on this idea that that book needs to start with a huge failure for her. It needs to start with a disaster. And that was, that was not always the case. Um, it used to be, I, I was trying to start that book with like, 
she and her wings go on a merry quest. I mean, not merry, but you know what I mean? They, they, they get their bird and they go on a quest and that, that wasn't working. I needed to kind of put, put the screws to Gwen on a little bit and break her down before I could get a book. Oh um, boy, did you break her down? Yeah. <laughs> At least yeah. how, the, how the books uh, start off. Before we get into the, um, <clears throat> the Empire's Ruin, I just want to quickly talk about Caden uh, because he's very much the, the focal point of yeah. the Blades. He's the oldest son. He's destined to, he's the heir to the um, Unhean throne. Um, and he's training in the in the mountains with, with monks. Um, and it's all centered, it's very religious, all centered around the one God. He needs to be, he needs to get into a state of emptiness where he sees he feels nothing and the purpose of that will be revealed later no spoilers um what was your um what was going into the, the character of uh Caden and his plot arc through the first trilogy well i mean anybody who who has even glanced at uh you know a book of about buddhism will will recognize the buddhist influences there um also i was leaning pretty hard on uh, you know, the various foundational texts of philosophical Taoism. But, you know, the interesting thing about both of those, uh, and I'm going to say philosophies here, because I'm sort of talking about sort of the philosophical arm of both of those, rather than kind of the devotional religious arm, um, is that the, the advantages that you get out of, you know, various types of meditation are, are pretty abstract in that thinking. And I thought, well, what if, what if those kinds of, uh, of mental exercises and spiritual exercises actually tied to a real living God and, and, and to um, some apparatus of the world? Well, you know, then that's what makes it fantasy rather than just a, a book about a real life meditation. Um, and so, yeah, I, I want, you know, I've been teaching that stuff, the real world stuff for a long time. And I thought I want to do work, work with that within inside the realm of fantasy. So yeah, that's where, that's where Caden came from. And like I said, he's kind of the, the spiritual axle of the book. Um, and he's grappling with in some ways, the most profound questions of like, what is a self? What is a person? What does it mean to be individual and separated from society? And, if you really achieve nothingness, why would you do anything? Why would why would you be motivated to to help? Um, and these are questions that I think are threaded through uh, you know the real world religious and philosophical traditions as well. He was definitely a character I kind of couldn't put my finger on at least at first. Like why mm-hmm. is he going through all this training? What's what's the big deal? And then as the plot progresses it really just takes, takes shape. And I think it was brilliantly done and obviously can't go too much into the next books and how his uh, training relates to the overall plot and stuff like that. But I remember vividly, I think it was in book two province of fire specifically with Caden. He finds himself, I don't know if it's in an underground cave or he's some, he's in some place. Mm -hmm. And then you make, and then when I was reading emperor, the emperor's ruin, I remember, I'm like, oh my God, that scene that you just wrote goes all the way back to Providence of Fire. I, I, I was reading it and I'm like, did you know, like doing that plot device uh, beforehand of you were going to using it in future, future books? I'm not sure exactly which scene you're talking about, but almost certainly not. Um, I'm not good at large scale architectural planning, certainly not across multiple trilogies. But 
what I did do all throughout the first book and throughout the first trilogy, and I mean, still now, is leave, I don't know, different ways to think of it, are like leave little hooks or leave untied threads. Um, so there will just be references in the first book to, you know, a little revolution that's taking place at the corner of the empire here, right? That, that'll just be just an offhanded comment that's never mentioned again from one person to another. And what that does is, I think it makes the world feel rich and lived in that we we know stuff is happening beyond the boundaries of the story that we never get to explore. That's one value, even if you never come back to it. But the second value is if your world is rich and there are all these threads at the corners, you can at any time in the future pick up some of those threads and start weaving off of them, right? And so I think those initial books are filled with like little bits of history, little bits of politics, um, references to intriguing characters that now when I'm working through the new books, some of that stuff comes back and I'm like, oh yeah, I can actually pick that up and, and pull it back in. Even though I never really intended to go anywhere with it in the first place, that's part of, I think, the value of taking the time to create a really complex and rich world in the first place. You know, sometimes I read um, books and I feel like the world building to me feels like a movie set uh, where if I looked inside any of the cabinets, like there'd be nothing there, right? And the the scene that I'm looking at right now is is vivid enough. But I think like if I just went around the block to like the next block of the town, it's not, it's nothing. It's just, there's, there's no one there. There's, it's not a real inhabited world. And I've spent a lot of time trying to think about what differentiates books where the world feels deeply inhabited and as though it extends beyond the story and those where it doesn't. And I think one of those things is if everything is wrapped up too neatly, if every element that's ever mentioned is germane to the plot, that almost seems like it might be a strength. Like you're writing a nice clean narrative, sort of the Chekhov's gun idea that if the gun shows up at the beginning, it's going to be used by the end. But sometimes it's nice to just have a gun and somebody mentions in passing, like, oh, that's the gun of so-and-so. And you don't, nothing ever comes of it. And it's like, well, what the hell is what the gun of so-and-so? Well, you don't know because the world is bigger than this one story. No, I'll, I'll explain to you off, off screen the scene I'm talking about because it okay. goes into both spo- spoiler plots. And yeah, 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 I definitely felt that you were you're taking threads from the first trilogy and putting it into the new new one. And I just yeah. love it. And it's much, I think, you, you can probably disagree with me, but I think it's a darker tone, uh, definitely from the original trilogy, especially where it goes with uh, with Gwenna's plot, yeah. plot line. Yeah, I mean, stuff. it was interesting. I mean, Gwenna is... I don't think it's a spoiler. So she's like clinically depressed for yeah. most of the new book. And I had real doubts about that. I, I mean, I was like, are people going to want to read a book where this badass warrior is like busted for most of the book? And uh, I mean, I, I didn't know, but that was the, that was the book that I was able to write ultimately that felt honest. And yeah, I mean, it is the most popular of, of the five books so far. So I guess there's an appetite for it, but I, I'll tell you, I had major misgivings about going in that direction. It's a huge hit and we eagerly await the, the sequel to that, but we have one more book to talk about and that is the prequel I'm holding right now in my hand. We have Skull Sworn. This is a prequel to the, uh, the Emperor's Blades and it talks about um, Pierre and how she becomes a Skull Sworn and her trials. Um, yeah. This is just a, a 
really brilliant standalones, very emotional. It's very um, heart driven. It's very tragic in some <laughs> instances as well. Um, how did this book become crafted and what was your idea wanting to publish something about Peer? You know, so Peer, uh, for people who haven't read the books, she is a priest of the God of death, um, which means essentially that she is an assassin, but an assassin with a religious bent. And, um, she was sort of a, a fan favorite all through the original trilogy. You know, I'd always get emails and stuff about how much people love Peer, and I loved writing Peer. She was uh, she was a blast to write, and not just Peer, but there are a number of secondary characters like the Flea is this veteran Ketral commander people love, and um, so I thought, well, I'll try and write an origin story for Peer. That would be an interesting challenge, and it was an interesting challenge in for a number of reasons. One. Um, it's written in first person, unlike the rest of the books, which are written in third person. And it, I was taking the secondary character and then centering her as the narrator of her own story. And one of the many, many, many things I learned once I started writing fiction is that it's way easier to write compelling secondary characters, especially who are not POV characters, than it is to write POV characters. Because if you want to write a badass assassin, and you never get into her head, the reader is going to do most of the work. You just need to give them a couple little points here and there, um, some some great dialogue and some great action, and they'll fill in for themselves the architecture of what makes this character tick and what makes her so cool under pressure and so, you know, all the stuff. But then when you have to write the character, it's like, holy shit, how, how do I do this? Um, it's kind of like the challenge of... Uh, of Ender's Game or, or any book that involves a genius, if you never have to get into the head of the genius, you can let the reader say, well, then, you know, something genius occurs in there and then they did this brilliant thing. But writing from the point of view of a genius is, is an uphill battle if you're not a genius, which I am not. So that was a, that ended up being a real interesting technical challenge for me, writing first person, like inhabiting peer and first person comes with all of its own kind of just craft issues, like from what context and vantage is the narrator telling the story about their life? To whom are they telling it? What is the discrepancy between the voice of the narrator telling the story and the voice of the narrator experiencing the action in the story and building tension between those two different iterations of the same character? I mean, I didn't know any about any of this shit. I just, as I was starting to write it, I was like, oh, okay. So there's a whole other bag of things to figure out here, which was really, which was really fun. And then another one of the challenges is you know, fantasy assassins, they're always out there. That's they're like one of the staples of the genre. But I wanted to really try and imagine priests of a god of death. And why would people worship a god of death? Plausibly, not just because they're evil and they like to chop people up, but like what what could lead someone who is not mentally ill to plausibly and joyfully worship a god of death? And so I spent a lot of time creating that um, priesthood and their rituals and their beliefs and their practices. Um, and that was, that was great. That really helped me then to imagine peer more fully. Yep. And I appreciate reading uh, Skull Sworn because first person POV is my favorite um, type of uh, book to read. I feel like mm -hmm. I get more experience, more personal relatability to the, to yeah. the character and getting yeah. into their mind. So I, I very much appreciate this. And it's just, it's one of the better standalones you can, you can actually find. And um, two questions related to this. 
you can read it as a full off standalone without reading the other books in the series. For right? sure. Yeah, yeah. And this one, I constantly get into arguments with uh, booktubers. And should you read Skull Sworn before Emperor's Blades or after? I believe, I believe that you should read it after reading Empire Emperor's Blades because you're not going to know who Pierre is and their impact on the story. But I, yeah. you tell me. I, I, this will be frustrating to you, but I don't have a firm answer. But I think I would say, and what, this is what I've told a ton of people, is that it's probably most fun to read it either between the first and second book of the trilogy or the second and third book of the trilogy. I do think that establishing the broader world um, in some ways will make the, because, because the trilogy is expansive. It's huge. It covers, um, you know, thousands of square miles of terrain and, and multiple years. Whereas Skullsworn takes place in one city over 14 days and has a very small cast of characters. So, being able to at least vaguely locate the events of Skullsworn in the broader context of the book, I think might make Skullsworn feel more rich. But then having read Skullsworn and knowing something about some of the supernatural events in the book, supernatural characters, and Pierre herself, I think would make the ending books of the trilogy more rich. Oh, so it's kind of like a pick your, pick your poison type type of thing i think so and i i mean i think that's kind of in my ideal world I, I well not in my ideal world one of the things i was originally considering was writing three standalone novels um one about peer one about the flea and one about somebody else that people could kind of read whenever they wanted to you know to experience the world from a different angle to look at it through a different lens um it's a little bit you know brian mcclellan does this thing where he writes um novellas set in his world that mm -hmm. just enrich the world uh they're not they're not uh relevant necessarily to the main line of the plot but they help you to understand the world and some of the characters better and differently which i think is kind of fun um and joe abercrombie a little bit does that too you know he wrote his first law trilogy and then he had those three standalones although i think you pretty much need to read the standalones after the first law trilogy yeah. Unlike Skullsworn, which I think you really could read just first or only. I do tell people, you know, just, you know, if I'm at a random party and someone realizes I'm a writer and they'll say, well, what book should I read of yours? I often tell people to just read Skullsworn first because it's the smallest. And I'm like, if you don't like it, you haven't wasted too much time. Um, and you're not on the hook for like three more books just to figure out how the story ends. So I've definitely told people to, to have at it. But I think... The perfect response is, you know, read it somewhere in the middle of the trilogy. <laughs> that's that's good. Nice. I believe I finished the um, the first trilogy before I picked up Skullsworn because yeah. I read yeah. them as they were coming out. So I yeah. didn't have that uh, privilege to do it in between. But yeah. But like, it'd be kind of cool. You know how, I mean, this isn't too much of a spoiler, but Caden spends some time with um, the priests of Anandshale, the priests of the God of Death in the third book. And I think it would be kind of cool to know more about those priests from Skullsworn before you read that third book. I think that would be an interesting, I don't know, an interesting bit of perspective. Yeah, that's that's great advice to hear. What are you reading now? And do you have any suggestions for um, some like under the radar series that not a lot of people either know about or have, have read? I don't know how under the radar this is. I'm rereading City of Stairs. Great book. By Robert Jackson Bennett. Yeah, I read it when it first came out. And I loved it, 
but then you know there were no sequels yet and so i you know got drawn into other things and then um recently my girlfriend was reading the whole trilogy and i was like oh they're of course i mean i kind of vaguely knew they were out but i'd forgotten so i went back and read it and i still think it's just awesome um you know great you know, we we're talking at the beginning of the show about the intersection between character and world building. And I, I just feel like he nails that intersection in this book. You couldn't have these characters without the world that they come out of. You know, some characters, it's like so-and-so is a badass swordsman. You could take that character and, and put him in any any of a hundred fantasy novels. These characters can only live in this world. They it, The whole thing feels organic. And when I was talking about, you know, worlds that feel real and inhabited, beyond the scope of the story a hundred percent so I don't, I don't know i don't think he's necessarily totally under the radar but he's not like a brandon sanderson figure so yeah city of stairs awesome i love that i love that series uh, very much especially especially books two and three it's a completely different feel from the from book one and there's it's like time i don't know if you've read the uh next two books but it has like time. no time jumps and it's different povs uh, for i'm them. very excited yeah i'm ex I'm, I'm just gonna rip through the whole trilogy i'm yeah no no breaks <laughs> <laughs> no breaks no breaks at all um and just to wrap up uh how is uh the writing coming on the sequel to empire ashes and do you have uh do you have a title in mind uh i we, we have a title chosen uh I, I don't think i can tell you just because we'll do a whole title and cover reveal at some point it's coming slowly, but well, you know, I've been writing this book mostly during the pandemic. Like there was no school for, I have a 10 year old son. There was no school for a year or something. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, just got like off of my rhythm and all these books are huge now. You know, I, I think I mentioned at the beginning that the Emperor's Blades was 180,000 words. Well, the Empire's Ruin was over 300,000 words. Mm -hmm. And why, why? I do this to myself. I have no idea because you don't get paid more money for a book that's longer. Um, I mean, I should just write instead of writing three, 300,000 word books, I should write like nine, 100,000 word books. <laughs> be a lot easier and more lucrative. But anyway, so they're big and this one's going to be just as big. It's got a lot of different POV characters in a lot of different places. It's really epic. There, there's a lot of elements, both, divine monstrous human political military uh that all need to come together um so because of the complexity of the project and just because i honestly not been on my a game through most of the pandemic it's it's been going slowly but i'm pretty excited and i'm i would say i've sort of hit my stride thank god and uh yeah we're working working through it as we speak no, we can't wait to read it. And why do you do this to yourself, making big epics? Is because we love big epics. We love those doorstop novels. And the more, yeah, I do too. I do too. Um, just sometimes that I, I just very important for me not to look at. You know, I do a lot of um, trail races, like long, you know, long races in the mountains. And in the same way that it's important not to look too hard at the whole scope of whatever the fifty miles that you have ahead of you. It's important for me not to look at the whole scope of the book that's ahead of me or, it's, or I, I'm filled with despair and instead just kind of focus on what, you know, what are the problems to solve today? What are the challenges for today? What are the goals to get to today? And then if you put in enough days like that, eventually you're like, oh, God, I have a draft. Excellent mindset. <laughs> well, very much looking forward to it whenever it uh, pops up. Um, 
so I want to thank you again for joining me. Uh, why don't you tell the audience where they can find you, where they can find your your books, and if you have a, a blog or a website. Yeah, sure. My, uh, you know, my name is Brian Stavely, so my website is just brianstavely.com. And um, I'm also kind of on Twitter. I mean, I have a, a Twitter handle. I don't do much on Twitter, but it's also at Brian Stavely. Um, and the books are available, you know, everywhere. Um, I will say if you like audiobooks, I've really been fortunate with excellent narrators all throughout. Um, Simon Vance did the original trilogy, and then I've had great narrators on the rest of the book. The, the most recent book had three different narrators. Um, so if you like to listen, um, I, I've loved the recordings and I've heard nothing but great reviews of the narrators of the people who have, who have done the recordings. So, yeah. Yep. I agree. I listened to Empire's Ruin on audio and they're just fantastic. So it was really fun. I got, you know, you get audition tapes from the different potential narrators. And my son and I listened to listen to the audition tapes and chose the narrators together as a that was a fun day. <laughs> well, more fun days are coming ahead with the, with this trilogy. So thank you again, Brian, for joining me. And thank you all for listening. Uh, cheers. Thanks so much for having me. 